If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Be sure to strap yourself in because we are in for an interesting time in the Word of God this morning. 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm going to begin reading today at verse 2. Hear the Word of God. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, it is, pro- is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. The word of the Lord. I bet after reading that passage, you're happy it's my job to preach this morning and not yours. (laughs) We're dealing this morning with a passage that rubs completely against the grain of our modern society and a passage that offends the sensibilities of many, perhaps even some of us sitting right here in this room. This is not an easy passage for a pastor to grapple with. And in response to this teaching on authority and gender roles, some readers have concluded that the Apostle Paul is hopelessly outdated and that his epistles reflect the worldview of a primitive age when male patriarchy ruled supreme. There are theologians, there are pastors of the liberal persuasion who will not hesitate to say in response to this text that Paul was a male chauvinist whose biblical teachings have contributed over the centuries to the oppression and the suppression of women. And not surprisingly, many liberal churches that embrace this negative view of Paul feel at liberty to pick and choose from his writings what they want to keep and what they would rather relegate to the dustbin of history. And certainly this is one of those texts that most liberal churches and Christians wish was not in the Bible at all. I don't think I have to tell you this morning, I completely disagree with that approach to Paul's writings. I consider it to be a form of blasphemy because it essentially elevates our own thoughts and our own opinions above the Word of God rather than allowing the Word of God to stand over us as the ultimate authority. As Christians, we do not have the right to sit arrogantly over the Word and to pick and choose what we want to believe and what we want to reject. God's Word stands in judgment over us. And our role as Christians is to humbly submit to its truth, trusting that this is indeed inspired revelation from God and that our God never makes a mistake and He never lies and He never changes His mind. When we approach a controversial text such as this one that causes many modern people to bristle, the right response is not to take an arrogant posture towards the Word, but rather to take a humble and submissive posture. And I hope and pray that is the attitude that we will assume this morning as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Liberal churches are wrong in their dismissive attitude towards Paul. But they are right in many ways about the culture in which Paul and the other apostles lived. A culture that did oppress women in ways that are absolutely sinful and inexcusable. Women in the first century context were often viewed as little more than sex objects and slaves. Second class citizens who did not have many legal rights and privileges compared to those enjoyed by men. Corinthians lived in a wicked and sinful culture that oppressed and mistreated women, women. But then again, I hope it's obvious to you that we still live in such a culture today in our own modern age. If you've been watching the news lately, you'll probably have noticed many of our favorite celebrities who oppose traditional values, who love to make public statements about politics and political correctness, are now under the microscope of public scrutiny. Two years ago, it was the shocking revelations of Bill Cosby drugging and raping women. Now it's Harvey Weinstein. This week, Dustin Hoffman. And who knows what will be next week. And so if you have bought into the common narrative that the oppression of women comes from conservative religious people in our world who hold themselves to traditional biblical values, have a look at Hollywood and allow your mind to be renewed. Sinful, oppressive, demeaning behavior towards women is not a function of where you sit on the political and ideological spectrum. It is a rather a function of the human heart which is sinful to the core apart from the regenerating work and grace of Jesus Christ. Some Christians have tried their best to snip texts like this one out of the Bible, but the truth of the matter is that many of us evangelicals struggle with these texts. We deal with them in somewhat different way. During the 20th century, as feminist ideology slowly made its way into Western culture at large and then into our Christian seminaries and churches, it brought with it some things that can be very beneficial and also some things can, that have proven to be very harmful and destructive. On the positive and constructive side, feminism has helped to reinforce the biblical truth that men and women are equal bearers of the divine image. We are equally valuable in the eyes of the holy God who created us for his own glory. And sadly, this biblical truth about the equal dignity and value of men and women has not always been adequately emphasized by conservative Christians. At times, we must admit to our own shame, biblical passages like this one have been twisted and misused in ways that have fostered sinful attitudes and behaviors towards women. I think we need to be very candid about that. I think we need to admit that we're tempted at times to use God's word as a pretext that will justify our own sinful attitudes and actions towards women and towards others within the body of Christ. And so I want to say this morning, before I utter one negative word about feminist theology, I am genuinely thankful for the benefits that have come to us through the feminist movement, and especially this reminder that men and women are completely equal in dignity and value and worth. Now that being stated and wholeheartedly affirmed, I need to say something more about the feminist movement that is not quite as positive and complimentary. In their effort to emphasize the fundamental equality of males and females, some Christian feminists have gone too far and have insisted that the equality between the sexes means we must eliminate role distinctions within our homes and within our churches when it comes to gender. It's the attitude that says, whatever you men can do, we women have the right to do too. And so if the Bible teaches, as I believe it does, that it is the role of male elders to teach and to preach and to exercise spiritual authority in the church, some Christian feminists respond that women should be able to function as elders and to exercise spiritual authority over men, or else we are denying them their fundamental equality and suppressing the expression of their spiritual gifts. And if the Bible teaches, as I believe it does, it is the role of husbands to lead their wives and their children in the home and family, some Christian feminists respond that women need to be co-leaders with their husband in the home who share precisely the same authority and role as their husbands. 
And over the course of the last 50 years or so, what Christian feminism has led to, brothers and sisters, is a slow and steady erosion of biblical authority in our churches and our families as we have sought to reinterpret the Bible to correspond with the culture around us and with our own ideas about how things ought to be. You know, a century ago, aside from a few Pentecostal and Wesleyan groups, it would have been unthinkable to have female elders teaching men from the pulpit. But as the envelope has been slowly and steadily pushed, we evangelicals have conformed ourselves to things the Bible does not allow, so that today we hardly blink an eye when we turn on the radio and we hear female preacher teaching and exercising authority over men when the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And what has been the response of the evangelical church to this kind of compromise? It has not been so much an effort to remove these texts from the Bible or to label Paul as a first century chauvinist, but rather to creatively reinterpret these passages so that we can make compromises and concessions with our culture. So that we can make the inspired scripture mean what it doesn't actually say. So that we can find little loopholes and excuses to allow in our churches and our pulpits what is clearly out of bounds in the scripture. Well, don't say I didn't warn you. I said you need to strap, it, strap yourself in for this message and now you know why. These texts open up sensitive cultural issues and no matter what the pastor says about a text like this one, we are bound to step on some toes. And so with that introduction, I want to dig into the passage in front of us, which in some ways is a very challenging one to wade through, but in other ways is very plain and very obvious. As Alistair Begg likes to say, in all of our Bible study and exposition, we need to allow the plain things to be the main things and the main things to be the plain things. That's the principle I'm going to do my best to follow this morning and I would encourage you to do the same. Primary difficulty in this text and, in, and really in all of these contemporary discussions about the respective roles of men and women in the home and in the church is knowing what elements of Paul's teaching are specific to his first century culture and what elements are universal in their scope and thus applicable to the church of Christ at all times and in all places. As we dig into this particular text this morning, we're going to discover there is indeed a universal principle that God would have us to understand about his perfect design for the genders, but also a specific cultural application that is no longer directly applicable for our culture and society today. In a nutshell, that's the argument I'm going to be making today as we journey through the text, a universal principle about gender that will be applied differently depending on your specific cultural situation. Now thankfully, the universal principle is given to us by Paul right at the outset in verses 2 and 3, and that's where we need to begin this morning before we make any effort to wade into the muddy waters of head coverings and haircuts. Let's have a look at verses 2 and 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, or perhaps you can also translate that phrase, as you'll probably see in a footnote, the head of a woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The opening verses in chapter 11 are a bit surprising as the Apostle Paul takes a break from his ongoing rebuke of the Corinthians in order to give them an encouraging compliment. Although there certainly is a great deal of dysfunction and disobedience within the Corinthian church, Paul recognizes and Paul affirms not everything in this church is going wrong. That's a good reminder for us. No matter how bad things may appear to be, it's often the case that things could be worse. And for that, we can thank God. You know, sometimes when we're faced with significant problems and sins within the local church, it's hard to see past those things. It is hard to be encouraged by what is going right. But Paul models for us here in verse 2 how important it is to give encouragement to imperfect churches who, and not merely to give correction and rebuke. 
in spite of all the challenges, in spite of all the offenses that Paul has faced in this church, he commends the Christians for taking the time to write to him about their concerns and for seeking out his wise counsel. And so Paul begins chapter 11 with an encouraging commendation, but very quickly shifts his tone and begins to address a number of problems that were disrupting their services of corporate worship. Back in chapters 8 to 10, Paul has been teaching the church about the nature of Christian liberty. Now beginning in chapter 11 and extending through chapter 14, he'll be dealing with disorder in public worship, beginning with the issue of head coverings, then moving into a discussion of the Lord's table, and then finally addressing abuses and concerns about the spiritual gifts. The disruption of corporate worship is the primary theme here in chapters 11 to 14, and Paul enters this discussion by reminding the Corinthians of the universal principle we read in verse 3. Let's look at that again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Very tempting here in chapter 11 to miss the forest for the trees. It's very easy here to get so caught up in this matter of haircuts and head coverings that we miss the main theological principle that undergirds it all, a timeless, a culturally boundless principle about authority and submission. As we're going to see, this is a principle that originates in the Trinity and extends into our relationships with one another as men and women created in the image of God for the glory of God. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you're clear in your understanding of this principle in verse 3, you have actually grasped the main point of this chapter as a whole. This is the main thing that needs to be the plain thing. And if we leave church this morning with a clear understanding of verse 3, I will consider this to be a successful and profitable time in the Word of God. The key that unlocks the meaning of verse 3 is the word translated head in our English Bibles or kafale in the Greek language. Paul gives us here in this verse a chain of authority that is punctuated by that little word head. And so we read there in verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. The first and the most important task we need to accomplish in understanding this verse is determining what Paul means by the word head as it relates men to Christ, as it relates wives to husbands, as it relates Christ to God. And friends, when it comes to this one little Greek word, kafale or head, there are really only two options that are available to us. The word can either mean source or else the word can mean authority. And the meaning of the word depends completely on the context in which it's found. And so one way that verse 3 could be translated is as follows. But I want you to understand that the source of every man is Christ. The source of a wife is her husband. And the source of Christ is God. On the other hand, the other way we can translate this verse is this. But I want you to understand that the authority of every man is Christ. The authority of a wife is her husband. The authority of Christ is God. The difference between those two translations might not seem like a big deal to you, but you would be amazed at how many PhD dissertations have been written on this very word and verse, how much ink has been spilled defending one of those two points of view. In favor of the source translation are the Christian feminists who want to eliminate role distinctions between men and women in the home and church and who bristle at the suggestion that the authority of the woman is the man. And so those Christians who would like to minimize or eliminate gender roles would like us to understand the relationship between the male and the female as one of source and not as one of authority. Now we're going to see a bit further down the page in verse 12. It is absolutely true to say that the source of the wife is her husband. Because Genesis 2 tells us when God created Eve, he created her out of man's rib. And that Adam responded to this marvelous creation by composing the very first love song in history. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Nobody on either side of this debate can test whether the man is the source of the woman, but the question remains whether that is what Paul is teaching us in verse 3. 
And I'd like to suggest to you this morning, it is impossible that Paul is using the word head as the feminists argue because it presents us with a massive theological problem. Look at the verse. It makes perfect sense to say that the source of every man is Christ. No problem. Makes perfect sense to say that the source of a wife is her husband. No problem there. The problem comes at the end of the verse because it doesn't make sense to say that the source of Christ is God. In fact, to argue that the source of Christ is God is actually to teach and to promote the heresy that Jesus Christ is a created and finite being. It's the heresy that was condemned in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. It is the heresy that's peddled door-to-door by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so if we follow the suggestions of these interpreters and translate the word kafale as source, we run headlong into a theological quagmire. It's for that reason, friends, that I cannot agree with the feminist revision interpretation of verse 3. The only translation of that verse that makes sense is to understand the word head in terms of an authority structure. And so the Apostle Paul is not making a point here about the source of man or about the source of the woman or about the source of Christ. Rather, he is making a point in this verse about authority. I want you to understand the authority of every man is Christ. The authority of a woman is a man. The authority of Christ is God. Understood in this way, the verse makes perfect sense. It corresponds perfectly with other passage in the New Testament. It does not lead us into heresies about the person work of Christ. Words are important, brothers and sisters. And this debate about the meaning of one little Greek noun should reinforce how important it is that we study the Word of God down to the very words so we don't end up misunderstanding what it means. Well, once we establish the fact that Paul is speaking in verse 3 about authority structures, we're in a better position to understand the meaning of this passage as a whole to wrap our minds around the specific issue about head coverings and haircuts. Here in verse 3, Paul gives three sets of relationships that involve authority and submission. The first one is the relationship between every man and Christ, or as Paul puts it, the head or the authority of every man is Christ. Now, I don't think any Christian in this room will take issue with that aspect of Paul's teaching because the authority of Christ over humankind is written large across the entire New Testament. For example, in Hebrews 2, we learn everything is in subjection under Christ's feet. In Philippians 2, we read God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. New Testament is absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is sovereign over humanity, that one day each and every one of us will stand before this God in judgment. We will bow the knee to the one Savior who is indeed the sovereign Lord of all. Not many of us have a problem affirming the authority of Christ over humanity, but the problem comes when we get to the middle part of verse 3 and read these words. The head of a wife is her husband. Or perhaps, as I've already stated, the head of a woman is the man, depending on how you understand and translate the Greek. At minimum, Paul is making a statement in verse 3 about authority structures inside of our homes, but it's quite likely he's making a broader statement about authority structures between men and women in general. When it comes to the home and the family, Paul's teaching here in this verse is not surprising since he says the same thing in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Although these verses in Corinthians and Ephesians are going to sound very countercultural to our modern ears, I wholeheartedly affirm this principle of male headship in the home and the church just as long as we have a biblical understanding of what headship and authority looks like. I also understand this is not a popular thing to affirm in our culture. This is not a politically correct thing to affirm in our culture. 
To be frank with you guys, I don't really care that much about what people think because I am convinced that it is a biblical thing to affirm. And I don't know about you, but I'm far more concerned about being biblically faithful than I am about being popular or politically correct. I can live with being unpopular. I can't live with being unbiblical. And if we are going to play even-handedly with the Scriptures, we have little choice but to affirm God has established male leadership in the home. God has established male eldership in His church. There is an authority structure between humanity and Christ. There is an authority structure between men and women. And then we come thirdly to an authority structure that I find absolutely fascinating. The head or the authority of Christ is God. This is wonderful. You know, as Trinitarian Christians, we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not believe in three separate gods, nor do we believe in one God who manifests Himself in three ways. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, and that each one of these Trinitarian persons are co-equal and co-eternal. When we're speaking as Trinitarian Christians about the essential nature of God, it would be a serious error for us to say that the Son is subordinate to the Father since the Bible plainly teaches us that the Father and the Son are equal in their essence. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. What Jesus said to Philip, If you've seen Me, if you know Me, you've seen the Father. You see, when it comes to God's essential being, God the Son is completely equal with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, when it comes to the function and the role of these three Trinitarian persons, it is equally evident that there is a hierarchy of authority within the Godhead. In terms of their function, in terms of their role, the Father is an authority over the Son, just as the Son is an authority over the Spirit. It's the reason we hear Jesus saying things like this in John's Gospel. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Or this one, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Or this, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, friends, when it comes to Jesus' essential nature as the second person of the Trinity, He is completely co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But when we are speaking about His function and His role within the Godhead, the Scriptures teach there is a functional submission of the Son to the Father. And this theology of the Trinity is central to the point that Paul is making in this verse about the relationship between men and women. I mean, just think about this for a minute. Within the Trinity, there is both equality and submission. And Paul wants us to understand the same thing is true when it comes to men and women. In terms of our essence, we men and women are absolute equals, equally valuable to God, equally displaying His image to the world. But in terms of our function and role, we are different from one another. I think that should be evident to everyone in this room. Biologically, men and women are different. God has given us parts that are meant to complement one another and to fit together for a purpose that God has ordained. God has designed women with the remarkable ability to give birth, and in His wisdom, He has withheld that ability from men. And all the guys say, thank God for that. There are physical differences between men and women. There are emotional differences between men and women. There are many other differences between men and women, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because that's the way our God designed us. We are equal, but yet we are different. And this marvelous complementarity between the sexes reflects something of the majestic triune God Himself. This is marvelous. This is breathtaking when you stop to think about it. But yet there are many people today in the church who will openly deny it. Who will claim that this kind of teaching is oppressive and misogynistic. 
I need to tell you this morning, friends, I have yet to meet a Christian believer who would say that it is demeaning for Jesus Christ to submit to the Father. But I've met all kinds of Christians who are all too willing and eager to say it is demeaning for a woman to submit to a man. It is demeaning for a wife to submit to her husband. And if you don't get anything else from the sermon this morning, I hope you understand there is a very serious logical and theological disconnect between these things. Now hear me out for a minute. If you want to argue that it is demeaning for a woman to submit to a man within the home and the church, logical consistency will require you to say the same thing about Jesus Christ and His submission to the Father. So let's not miss the point here. Paul links together three sets of relationships in verse 3. You cannot affirm one if you are not willing to affirm the other two. These authority structures will either stand together or they will fall together. And if you want to deny functional submission in the home and the church, you must also deny functional submission in the triune Godhead. Now this is one reason I'm convinced Paul is giving us here a universal principle. This is not a temporary cultural principle that is no longer relevant for the church. I'm going to have more to say in a few moments about authority and submission, but the principle in verse 3 ought to be clear, and I trust that you are willing to accept it this morning, not because Pastor John says that you should, but because this is part of God's inspired and revealed truth. It is part of His revealed design for us as men and women. The real meat and potatoes in this chapter is already contained in verse 3. But now we get to the fun part. We continue on to verses 4 to 16 where the apostle gives us instruction about head coverings and haircuts. As we move into these verses, I need to tell you, these are some of the most challenging verses in the New Testament to understand or to preach. If we weren't going through the Bible systematically in the way that we do, I would never choose to preach on a passage like this. Part of the challenge that faces us when we look at these verses is that we don't fully understand from our modern vantage point the cultural situation in ancient Corinth. And so from our modern day perspective, the issues that are being raised in this chapter by the Apostle are seen as confusing at best or as irrelevant at worst. And sadly, that's how this chapter is often treated within the church of Christ, as hopelessly confusing or as hopelessly irrelevant for Christians living in the 21st century. Second challenge that confronts us in these verses is an ongoing debate about the nature of the covering that Paul is speaking about. Some New Testament scholars believe that Paul is speaking about a cloth veil that was placed on top of the woman's head, while other scholars believe he's referring to the gathering up of long hair into a bun and then pinning that hair to the top of the head rather than allowing it to flow down the woman's back. There is not a consensus about what kind of covering Paul is speaking about here, whether the hair itself is the covering that's being described. You know, in spite of these interpretive challenges, I, I believe that what Paul is driving at in these verses is really not that hard to understand. And I do believe there are principles here that are applicable and relevant for our situation today. I spent a lot of time this week studying this passage. And after poring over this passage in detail, my own view is that Paul is not referring to a woman's hair as the covering, but rather that he is speaking about some kind of cloth veil. Now, part of the reason why I think that this is so is because of what Paul says about the men in verse 4. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. You know, before Paul has anything to say to the women, he has something to say to the men about their conduct in public worship. According to Paul, any man who covers his head in public worship when praying or when prophesying dishonors his head, or in other words, he dishonors Christ. Although it's possible that some Jewish men back in the first century covered their heads in corporate worship as most Jewish men still do today, the balance of evidence suggests this practice did not take root until the fourth century. 
And so Paul's comment here about head coverings on the men is probably not a refutation of synagogue worship, but rather it is a refutation of Gentile and pagan worship. We know from many ancient sources, Gentile pagans would often take their toga and would pull part of it up over their heads whenever they were participating in a religious ritual. And certainly in a large Greek city like Corinth, where pagan worship was widespread, the Christian believers wanted to make a distinction in their worship, not to do anything that would suggest that they were following the example of their pagan neighbors. To bring pagan rituals and practices into the Christian church is to dishonor the Lord Jesus. And so Paul forbids the men of Corinth from covering their heads when praying or prophesying. Now I could pause here and preach a whole other sermon on what it means to prophesy, but you're going to have to wait for a few weeks for that one. Then we get to verse 5. And we learn that Paul has the opposite instruction for women in the church. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. What are we going to do with that? Well, to understand the reason for Paul's instruction in verse 5, we first need to know a few things about life in the ancient world. Back in first century Greek and Roman culture, long hair on a woman was considered to be sexy. And a woman in that culture who let her long hair flow down her back without gathering it up into a bun on the top of her head or covering it up with a veil was sending a definite social signal to the men around her. If the hair was long and flowing, it either meant that that woman was a temple prostitute or else it was a signal that she was sexually interested and available. That might seem a bit weird to us today in 21st century Canada, but that's the way it was in ancient Greece. Long and flowing hair communicated sexual availability and a desire for male attention. And so, when a woman was married in that culture, the respectable thing to do was to gather the hair on top of the head or to cover it up with a veil. Now, this is a practice we still see in the world today in many of the Muslim cultures where women cover their heads with a hijab. To cover the head in that context and culture was a way for women to show respect for their husbands and by contrast, leaving the head uncovered and the hair down was seen to be a mark of rebellious and sexually promiscuous women. That's what we need to understand about long hair on women, but there's a little bit more to the story. You see, just as long hair was seen in that culture as being sexy and flirtatious, so short hair on a woman was seen to be the hallmark of public shame and humiliation. Back in first century culture, if a wife was caught in an adulterous relationship, her hair was often cut short or even shaved off as a form of public humiliation. A shaved head in the first century was the sign of an adulteress. And once we come to see the significance that hair length played in the ancient world, we can start to make sense of what Paul is teaching us in this chapter. It's very difficult to reconstruct the exact historical situation, but apparently some of the married women in the Corinthian church had decided to take off their veils to let their hair down, either as a way of rebelling against their husbands or else as a way of asserting their own liberty in Christ. Why these women were removing their veils is not exactly clear, but what is clear from these verses is how the Apostle Paul feels about it. Paul is mortified by the actions of these women. He sees it as a violation of the principle that he's already outlined in verse 3, the authority that a husband has over his wife. In that culture, to remove the veil was a visible act of rebellion, and not only that, It sent a signal to non-believers in the wider community that these Christian women in the church were promiscuous, that they were looking for attention outside of their marriages. That's why Paul, in a tone of complete disgust, tells them in verse 5, if they're going to take off their veils in church, they may as well shave their heads completely. So distasteful was their action. So open was it to misunderstanding. Paul tells them they are bringing disgrace to their husbands. They may as well go the whole way, take the mark of an adulteress, and walk around town completely bald. That's the point he's making here. 
There's no question about what Paul thinks about the Corinthian women removing their veils in church, why he thinks it is sinful for them to do so. But now in the next few verses, the apostle gives these women a number of reasons why he believes they should cover their heads as a sign of authority and submission to their husbands. First reason that Paul gives to convince these ladies is found in verses 7 to 9. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Many feminist theologians like to argue that gender roles and authority structures between the the sexes came about through the fall of humanity. But here in these verses, Paul makes it crystal clear Gender roles, gender differences existed in Genesis 2. Authority structures are not part of the fall. They existed before sin came into the world and messed everything up. And so Paul appeals here to the creation narrative of Genesis 2 and the fact that Eve was created out of Adam and also that Eve was created in order to be Adam's helper. All the way back in Genesis 2, we see the clear pattern of male leadership, male headship that God in His wisdom established for the home. And now in Corinthians, Paul uses this as evidence for the principle he has stated in verse 3. The Corinthian women should wear a veil as a sign of authority on their head because God Himself has established male headship in the Garden of Eden as an enduring pattern for all time and for all cultures. Second piece of evidence that Paul gives the women here in this passage is found in verse 10. And this is probably the most difficult and obscure statement in the entire chapter. That is why, Paul says, a wife ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Why? Because of the angels. That's a very difficult statement. It's impossible to know what the Apostle Paul means in this verse for certain, but I'm going to give it a shot and you can take it for what it is. An educated guess. Now angels, as you probably know, were created specifically by God to serve Him and to submit to His authority and command. And as some of the most submissive and obedient creatures in the universe, the angels were present when God created Adam and Eve and when God established man as the head of the wife. Angels understand the concept of authority and submission. And when we take action in our churches, when we take action in our homes and our families that overturn the authority structures God has ordained, the angels in heaven get upset about it. Who knows? Maybe it brings back bad memories of the terrible rebellion of Lucifer and the demons when all the fallen angels turned their back on God and rose up against Him in rebellion. But whatever the reason may be, the angels of heaven are deeply offended when we human beings rebel against the authority structures that God has wisely put in place. This is a very interesting thought. Angels are watching our corporate worship services. Isn't that an interesting thing to consider? Angels are watching our corporate worship services. And when we Christians resist God's authority and choose to do things our own way, they are deeply offended, just as God Himself is deeply offended. Throughout these verses, Paul has been hammering home the principle we saw in verse 3, the authority of a wife is her husband. But lest we get the wrong impression here about what male headship looks like, Paul gives us a critical qualification, verses 11 and 12. Let's look at those verses. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. You know, it would be very easy for us to take Paul's teaching here about male leadership and to use it as a pretext for sinful attitudes and oppressive actions towards our wives and towards other women. But now Paul carefully guards the church against this temptation by reminding the men of Corinth that their wives have been given by God to be loved, cherished, and treasured, and not to be treated like a doormat or like a piece of property. Because if it wasn't for women, Paul says, there would be no men. Because isn't it true? It's the women now who give birth to the men. In other words, Paul is saying, we men are not independent of women. And we shouldn't act like we're independent of women. 
Just as our wives need us as men to provide godly leadership in our homes and churches, so we men desperately need the wisdom and the strength and the support of our wives. I probably don't need to tell you this morning how thankful I am for my wife, Leslie, who's such a tremendous blessing and encouragement to me. Leslie's my treasure. I love Leslie more than anyone else in this world. And the truth is that every man in this room, whether you're married or not, needs to see the women in our lives and in our churches as equals who have a vital role to play in the kingdom of God. And that role is every bit as important as the role God has given us to play. How sad, how tragic, how unfortunate that this word submission has taken on such a negative meaning in our modern culture when the Bible holds it up as something that reflects the very heart the very character of Jesus Christ, the one who joyfully and willingly submits to the loving headship of the Father. Over in Ephesians 5, wives are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. But if you continue reading in that passage, you will discover that we men have an even harder job. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Friends, in Christian marriage, the pattern for women is to submit to the authority of the husband as Christ submits to the authority of the father. Not under compulsion, but joyfully and willingly. And by the same token, the biblical mandate for Christian men is to love our wives in a self-sacrificial way just as the Lord Jesus loved His church and gave His life for her by dying on the cross. All too often, friends, we understand submission in terms of oppression and tyranny when the Bible presents it as a joyful response to loving leadership that reflects the heart of our loving and gracious God. And may God help us as Christian men to love our wives and to treat the women in our churches with the utmost dignity and respect. Finally, Paul has something more to say to us in the concluding verses about haircuts. Verses 13 and 14. Judge for yourselves. Is is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. You know, so far in this passage, Paul has been speaking primarily about authority and submission within the context of marriage and corporate worship. But now in these concluding verses, he makes a general statement about gender distinction that is important for us to understand. In the ancient world of Greece and Rome, men almost always cut their hair short and women almost always grew their hair long, even though the woman's hair was often covered up or was put up on the top of their head. In that first century context, if a man grew his hair long like a woman, it would have been perceived by the wider culture as a sign that he was the effeminate partner in a homosexual relationship or perhaps that he was a male prostitute. You see, in Paul's culture, men who grew their hair long were intentionally giving up their masculinity just as women in that culture who intentionally cut their hair short were giving up their femininity. And so the underlying principle in all of this business about haircuts is that men should dress and act like men and that women should dress and act like women. Now that might look different depending on what culture you are a part of. But the principle remains the same. It is extremely relevant for our culture today when we are blurring the lines between male and female and when this whole issue of transgenderism is coming in like a flood. As Christian believers, we are not permitted to blur blur gender boundaries that so many people are desperate to do today in North America. Rather, we are to celebrate as Christians our gender differences and to embrace our masculinity and our femininity. Well, we've reached the end of the text. But perhaps some of you are still wondering whether or not this passage means that the married women of Rosedale Baptist Church should start covering their heads with a veil and whether the men of Rosedale Baptist Church should keep their hair short and their beards long. 
Beards long. <laughs> All right, and so if that question is still hanging over your head, okay, get the pun? Let me say in conclusion, by way of application, I'm convinced the principle of authority and submission in verse 3 is universal. But the application of the principle will differ depending on your culture and context. In Corinthian culture, the way women indicated submission to men in the home and the church was what by wearing a veil during corporate worship. But today in our modern Western world, I don't think that a veil carries any symbolic meaning whatsoever. Whether my wife Leslie puts something on her head or doesn't put something on her head when she comes to church on Sunday makes absolutely no difference to me because in our culture, head coverings don't send any signals about submission and authority. So does that mean this has no relevance for us? No. Because every culture, every people, every time period must carefully consider what the sign of authority will be in that culture. We must consider what we are communicating by the way we dress and the way we behave. Back in Paul's day, long hair on women was seen as sexually suggestive. I wonder what the equivalent might be today in Canadian culture. I think we all know. Christian women, if you are wearing tight or shortcut clothing that shows off your body in such a way that you are seeking to attract attention from someone who is not your husband, Perhaps there is something in this passage that you can take to heart and prayerfully consider in the week to come. Times change. Cultures change. The principle of Christian modesty remains the same. And so, Christian ladies, let me say to you this morning, it is wrong and it is sinful for you to wear something to church that will take the focus off of Jesus Christ and will put it onto your own body. Because when you do that kind of thing with the improper motive, you are dishonoring God and you are disrespecting your husband. That's the modern equivalent. That's the application of this text for us today. It is modesty in the way we dress that communicates respect for God and respect for our spouse. And as the Apostle Paul concludes, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. I wish that that were so. Brothers and sisters, let us never distract from the truth of the gospel by the way that we dress and act. Rather, let us commend the truth of the gospel through all of our actions. And let us honor and respect one another as equal bearers of the divine image. Amen.